Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. Today I'm speaking on the house of expectancy. And I must admit, I didn't have much expectancy to see too many or to see all of you gathered. I thought you might be in the Midlands seeing the snow, traveling up. You don't have to go that far. I think you could have gone to Boerters Hill. I heard at Kersney College it was the first time it snowed since 1976. Um, But glad to have you here and in the house. Thank you for being here. Let me take a moment to pray. Father, we just thank you that we can come and even as we speak about the house of expectancy, We just thank you that we can posture our hearts in that way. We can just expect you to move powerfully as you always do in this house, in our lives, in our families, in those areas we're praying into. I thank you that your kingdom advances as we as your people take your word and your promises to be true. And we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and activate and accentuate and work that out here in this place, even as we have taken time just to lift up the name of Jesus. And as we come to your word now, we just pray that you will just reveal everything you're wanting to reveal, that you'll anoint it to speak, to, to deal with the inner parts that just need to be revitalized by your touch, but that'll also build fruitfulness in our lives that'll be evident and that'll be expressible and deliverable to to those around as we head out. So come and just move powerfully. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we say amen. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up. We're going to be in the book of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 3 and chapter 7. There will be one or two scriptures that go up on the screens, but we are going to jump around a bit. So uh, if you're ready and feeling biblically athletic, just get your Bibles out and get your finger ready to bounce around the verses. But we're going to be looking at what it means to be a house of expectancy, what it means to be a house of expectancy. And I want to really look at John the Baptist and just some things we can see out working in his life as Jesus interacts with him. And so we're going to read from Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to 9. Actually, I'm going to read from verse 2, and I'm not going to read all the way to 9. We will touch on those verses. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read verse 2, 3, and I'm going to read verse 7. So in the second verse, it says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Let's jump to verse 7. And John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Now that doesn't sound like a scripture that is exploding with a place to encourage you into expectancy. But as we delve into it, we're gonna see a few things just get revealed as we, as we open this up. So let me ask this question. Have you ever wondered what makes one person so open to God and his presence and another person so closed? I get to pick on those sitting in the front row. So let me pick on Rich firstly. What makes Richard so receptive, attentive, responsive to God's presence and God's voice, while Roseanne, my mother, sitting on the front row on my left, seems to be a bit bored, a little bit apathetic, oblivious, and couldn't really see or respond to God if he was right before her, 
shouting at her? What, what makes that happen? What makes one person open and one person closed? <laughs> if, you, if you look at Jesus' words, as we've just been doing, and we look at um, Luke 3, verse 2 onwards, as I've mentioned, we see that there's one thing that stands out that differentiates the people in the setting. And it's not the normal things that we would look at. It's not upbringing. It's not socio-economic economic background. It's not educational attainment. In fact, if you look at the factors, it was the least likely people who were the most God-hungry and God-attentive. And it was the people who were best positioned that were the most God-averse and God-obtuse, that were opposed to Him. That's what we see outworking here. The seemingly best positioned were the ones that were keeping at arm's distance while those who seemed in the most need were needing him and running to him. It was the down and outers, those who looked lost and were living a little bit loose, those that we would have defined as bad people or as nasty people, they were the ones who were beating down this dirt road towards Jesus in pursuit of him. And it was the ones that seemed prim and proper. It was the ones who seemed good, that we would define as decent, the ones that were pious and religious, who were hiding behind their newspapers, peeking out, shaking their heads, and wishing that this would all come to an end. You see, in Jesus' day, those that were open were those that were running to John the Baptist so that he could take them and douse them in the waters, and those that were closed are those that were on the banks, grinding their teeth, gnashing their teeth. And so really, the differentiation was this. If you went down to the waters, you were wide open. But if you stood back, well, then you were tightly closed off to what God was wanting to do. But how does that apply today? What does that mean for us here? Because we know John the Baptist was a particular sort of individual in his camel skin, eating his diet of locusts, causing and calling out causic remarks that just brought in a sense of... um, discouragement to some as he called them brood of vipers. How does that apply to us today in the day and age we live? Well, I want to look at the essence of what John's ministry was and then just start to extrapolate that a little bit. Really, at the heart cry and the pursuit of his ministry was this thing of repentance. Repentance. And repentance is this thing is when we have the humility to look at our own lives and to see how that is unfolding and to see where that falls short, where that falls short of the life God is calling us um, to live in and live out of. It's with humility to look at our lives and say, where does this not match up with the life that God has for us, a life that we can live in a glorious fashion that gives Him glory? That's what repentance is. It means to admit that, to come to that place. Repentance means this. You come to a full stop, you turn around, and you run full tilt in a fresh and a new direction. It's when something comes alive to you. It was like the prodigal son when he came to his senses in the midst of the muck and the mire, and he got up, turned around, and he hot-heeled it back to his father. Something had shifted, and that's really what the word means. It means that I'm no longer going to do things on accordance of my own choosing, in accordance with reaching my own ends. I'm not going to do them by my own strength or out of my own weakness and for my own glory. I'm going to live in a different way. As I mentioned, I want to live in a way that is gloriously full of life and a life that glorifies God. That's what repentance looks like. And that's what he's speaking about here as we look and starts to unfold in these passages. But really, what precedes repentance? And some of us might say, well, well, guilt or remorse or shame or pain, 
or loss, or maybe it's just that I be, become sick and tired of being sick and tired with doing the same thing over and over, and that brings me to repentance. And sure, that, that often is the case. But I believe that there's a deeper cause. You see, Romans 2 verse 4 says this, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He is calling us to turn around, to come to that full stop, turn around, run full tilt in a fresh direction out of kindness for us because he wants us to run to all that he has, the blessing, the extravagance of his goodness and out of that which would be our own destruction. So really that's his heartbeat. So it's his kindness that causes it. But I want to say even in that. And if we can put up my first point. I want to say, and what I, my premise is this, that the root of repentance is expectancy. The root of repentance is expectancy. And really, expectancy is this. It's a renewal of hope and anticipation. It's the spark in your soul that dares to believe that good can come from bad, that light can overcome darkness, that life can resurrect even out of that which seems like death. It's this renewal of hope. And it's a tenacious belief that in spite of it all, in spite of what's happened and what hasn't happened, what is going to happen is going to redeem all of that because I'm putting my hope in Jesus. And so really that's the definition of this expectancy. And there were thousands in that day and age that were streaming down to John the Baptist as he was in the waters that were crowding the banks to be baptized by him. And it was a tough message. He said, you brood of vipers, he said, turn or burn, basically. That's what he was saying. But when you look at it, this was not a hopeless message. This was a message that brimmed with hope because it was promising a newness of life and a portrayal of God who wanted to forgive, who wanted to restore. It was proclaiming there is life ahead of you. There is fullness of life, abundant life. Come out of everything robbing you of that. Turn around and run in this new direction. That's what it was, a, 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 it was a call, a clarion call of hope in the midst of what seemed like hopeless moments. And so we see this unfolding in Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 7. We see that there's this expect, uh, expectancy that I'm talking about, but it also shows that there's the opposite of expectancy. And uh, that's not something we often look at. When we say, what is the opposite of expectancy? Maybe we think it's cynicism. Maybe we think it's complacency. Maybe we think it's apathy. Any of these things can seem like the opposite of expectancy, but this is what the opposite of expectancy is. You ready? Expectation. The opposite of expectancy is expectation. It's, it's the, the sense, sense of I'm owed, I'm entitled, I deserve, I demand, I have an expectation that needs to be met. And it's the opposite of living in expectancy. Expectations are often formed where expectancy is lived. I say that again, expectations are formed, but expectancy is lived. And a spirit of expectancy is open to God. And a spirit of expectation closes itself off from God because there demands to be met before any of the doors are opened. And so we're talking about a house of expectancy. We've looked at a house, and it's probably one of the most... Um, a surprising of the themes, because you can expect a house of prayer and a house of uh, worship. You can look at a house of grace. We're going to be speaking about a house of love. And all of these, those seem like the best place to live. But why is it so important to look at the difference between expectancy and expectation? We're going to see that unfold as we look at why it's so important to live here, why it's the best place to live as we're looking at the criteria and the characteristics that are portrayed from Scripture. 
So let me tell you a little bit from my journey. Uh, coming into ministry, I've had the opportunity to minister in different environments to different groups of people, different churches. Uh, last week, I had the opportunity to be sitting in the front row while I was preaching at Victory. It's an interesting day. We live in Victory Church in J-Bay. But anyway, what I've found is, is there are different responses in different places as you're ministering to different people. Uh, sometimes you can minister and you can, and you can hardly get any of what you're wanting to say across and you think nothing was actually delivered in that message, yet people's lives are touched and they changed and they transformed and you're amazed by it. Other environments, you think I am ministering brilliantly. I sound like Louis Giglio. I'm as passionate as T.D. Jakes and as eloquent as Steve Furtick. And in the midst of that, no one is paying any attention. They, they're disinterested and nothing goes deeper than just some blank staring eyes, and you wonder, well, what's the dynamic? What's happening here? Why are some people so alive to God and some people, in a sense, so disconnected? And you can look through, and maybe you look at yourself and you say, well, maybe I was out of sorts ministering then, and I was more uh, in sync with the Holy Spirit when I was ministering in that environment. Maybe it's the way I communicate. Maybe uh, it sounded like a foreign language to them, but to them, it was, it was, there was a synergy. It's exactly how they respond. Respond. Maybe it's just that I'm too short or too bald or too good looking. It could be any of those factors. But I'm convinced that what makes the difference here is the spirit of expectancy. Spirit of expectancy. Now, let me tell you this the anointing can set any atmosphere. Don't get me wrong. From God would to us, the anointing can shift and change and cut across and set any atmosphere. But there's something about our hearts, not just being reading the temperature, but being thermostats that set the temperature of our hearts, that we can set ourselves to expectancy that attracts the miraculous moving of God's power in our lives, in our church, and in our community, and in our nation. And so there's something about having a spirit of expectancy, and when that is present, then God, it seems like He's just everywhere and anywhere showing up and showing off out of His goodness. I heard a, a story of a guy by the name of, well, let me just tell you quickly. I, I've encountered this in my, my own journey. I said ministering in different places. I was ministering in Alaska, and I'd been at Bethel Church, and I'd gone to a school of healing and impartation, and I felt armed and dangerous. And so I headed to Alaska, and I told the pastor, I'm going to come, and we're going to pray for people to be healed. And so people pitched up, and there were crutches, and there was um, wheelchairs, and I had expectations that had been formed. And so I had this set, this is what must happen in this way and when I do this. And anyway, I went down that line and um, I was praying for the different people and I uh, didn't see any get healed. I probably prayed for at least over 100 that day, I saw no one get healed. By the time I was coming to the end, I prayed for someone who was in a wheelchair and we spent some time, didn't see any breakthrough. And then there was this one lady, she didn't even stand at the line, she just waited. Waited at the back. She came up and we prayed for her, felt nothing, expectancy was low, my expectations had been disappointed and weren't there, laid hands on her, prayed for her, got on a plane, came back to South Africa, I wasn't uh, heavy laden with many testimonies to share. Uh, anyway, after I was back here for three weeks, I got an email, 
This lady had been in traction. She was a farmer. She loved horse riding. She couldn't ride her horses, couldn't work around the farm, couldn't carry anything without falling over, being in pain because of her spine and her vertebra. And she had said, you know, I knew when I was coming to church that I had an expectancy I was going to meet with God. It didn't happen in the message. It didn't happen in the prayer line. But she lived in that expectancy. And she came up at the end. It was a moment where I never had the faith, but there was expectancy in the heart. And the anointing of God can set any atmosphere. And she said, I was completely healed. They went home, rode my horse, carried buckets, did everything, and uh, living in healing. I mean, that's amazing. And, and you know, really, I mean, uh, uh, yes, you can clap. Let's just, uh, Lord, we ask for more of that. We ask for more of that. And even as a clap disrupts atmosphere, we thank you that your goodness and miraculous power will disrupt old atmosphere and breathe fresh life and air into this place as we live in expectancy in Jesus' name. But when, when there's expectancy present, God shows up. And so there was another minister, his name was Gary Nelson, and he's from the U.S., and he was a youth pastor in the prairies, and the leader of his church came to him and said, I want you to minister, and I want you to share on Pentecost Sunday. And the youth pastor getting that sort of invite, I mean, he was excited. And like most rookie pastors, he thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach everything there is to know in the Holy Spirit. And so it pitched up Pentecost Sunday, and he's preaching, and he started in Genesis. He's ending off with Spirit come as it is in the last verses of Revelation. And he only is halfway through his message. He's an hour in, and he's halfway through his message. And uh, most of the congregation are starting to rehearse their afternoon nap. That's where it is in the midst of the message. And he gets to the part of Scripture in Acts where he says, and with a mighty rushing wind, the Spirit came. And at that exact moment, all the windows in the facility exploded, shattered into the building. And now you're thinking, well, listen, the Holy Spirit moved. No, it's he was on the prairies and a tornado had caused the vacuum, imploded the, the windows. And let me tell you, everyone was attentive in the audience that day. Unfortunately, it wasn't because of expectancy or anointing. But why I'm saying this is that there is something about having a spirit of expectancy as the disciples gathered in the upper room that they didn't know what it would look like or how it would happen. They had no expectation. Jesus didn't say that this on this day, this is how tongues of fire. He said, power is going to come, be there, live in it, wait. And something happened. And there's something about having that spirit of expectancy that you'll see the hand of God moving powerfully, moving miraculously, mysteriously, that you can't put a, a shape to it or a form, but it will surprise you and overwhelm you, and it will delight your heart. There's something about that, and it's biblical. You see, Jesus could do few miracles when he was in an atmosphere where there wasn't belief or faith or honor. It said that he wasn't able to do many miracles there. There was no sense that his goodness could break out in that place. And let me tell you, when you look at what the biblical scholars say, it's, a matter of, it's not a matter of power, but of principle. Because let me tell you, he had the power to do miracles wherever he wanted to. But you see, there was a principle that he wasn't going to contradict his own message, that miracles take place in an atmosphere of faith, belief, expectancy, and hope. He wasn't going to contradict his own message, so he could do few miracles there. So my encouragement to you is what is the atmosphere of your life and your home and your marriage, and your parenting, and your workplace? What is the atmosphere, is the expectancy where God can do much and make much of your life as you allow him that space to do so? So what opens us up to God is repentance, and what undergirds repentance 
is his kindness. And what works and activates and allows all of that to take place in our lives is expectancy. It's knowing that God is for us. He is toward us. He's not out to get us, as I've shared, that he can bring good out of bad. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It matters who he is and what he can do in the midst of that situation. And we know that with him, all things are possible. So let's go on to the next point. It is this. Expectancy can become expectation. So I'm telling you, we need to live in a place of expectancy, but I'm challenging you and I'm warning you as well that expectancy can become expectation if we can put that point up. Thank you. Luke 7 reveals John the Baptist's disappointment. He was in a place of expectancy with the Messiah coming. He was proclaiming that, prepare the way, the Lord is coming. But in chapter seven, we see he's in a place of disappointment because here, and we read in Matthew's account, he's actually in prison and uh, he's already said that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. He's baptized them, but now he's in prison and now he's thinking, you know, I might not survive this, what I'm going through. And so he sends his disciples out to ask Jesus a question. There's one that he said, I'm not worthy to baptize you, to tie your shoes or anything. He sends his disciples to ask him this, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? All his confidence gone, expectancy gone, and now he's saying, are you the one or should we expect someone else? You know why? Because his expectations had not been met. You see, the people of Israel had been living in a place of expectancy. They had believed that the the Messiah was coming and he was gonna redeem them and restore them. He was gonna bring them out of bondage and it did not matter how much pain they were in. They had this hope. They were brimming with this glorious hope of what the Lord was gonna do in and amongst them as a community. And so they were able to deal with the sorrow and the joylessness of some of the things they faced. But we see that their expectancy shifts to expectation. They find themselves in this place where, and this is what expectation does, It dictates terms. It sets conditions. It insists that the future look a certain way. If you wanna know if you've got expectations at work and formed in your life, it dictates terms, it sets conditions, and insists that the future looks a certain way. And their expectancy was that God would come, but they had not only expectancy, the expectancy became expectations, where they thought, this is what he'll look like, this is what he'll do, this is how he'll overthrow our enemies, this is how he'll rule and reign, and this is how he'll put us in a place of functioning around him. You see, they had expectations that weren't met. There were these popular expectations of the Messiah. But you see, with John the Baptist, he didn't fall into the popular expectations, but he did fall into this, which we do as well, personal expectations. He had personal expectations. He expected to get out of jail. Lord, I'm meant to be preparing your way. I can't do that in jail. My expectation is you come and set me free. He he had expectations that Jesus would work uh, some of these extraordinary miracles he was doing in, in his situation. He had an expectation that the good that Jesus was doing with the poor could be halted for a bit and and that Jesus could come and do some good in his moment. And so he had these expectations and because his expectations weren't being met, he was questioning if Jesus was the Messiah. Sometimes our expectations aren't met so we question if God is God because he doesn't meet our expectations. He says, you see, Jesus is disappointed John's expectations, and so he says, should we expect someone else? See, here's the thing. Expectations set us up to be disappointment. Sorry, to be disappointed. They also set us up to be disappointment. But let me say that again. Expectations 
set us up to be disappointed. And once that disappointment sets in, it hardens quickly into apathy, into bitterness, and into suspicion. Expectations set us up to be disappointed. And if we allow that disappointment to set in our hearts, we become angry, apathetic, bitter, and suspicious of all that is going on around us. But here's the thing. Expectancy sets us up to be thrilled with the goodness of what God is doing in our lives, around our lives, and through our lives. That's what expectancy does. It sets you up. And expectation also sets you up. So expectation says this. Here's what expectation says. This specific thing must happen in order for me to welcome it. So here's expectation. This specific thing must happen, and then I'll welcome it. You know what expectancy says? Expectancy says this. I'm expecting the goodness of God. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I am here to welcome it. See the difference? Expectation says this. This thing must happen for me to welcome it. Expectancy says something good's going to happen. I don't know what it looks like, but I am here to welcome that. You need, might need to rewind that and watch that a couple times to get it, but it, it'll, it'll shift your posture and the position, the stance of your heart in terms of the things of God. And so let me say, my, my third point is this, that expectancy and expectation are different. You've heard me saying that, but let me define why. If you look in Romans 8, verse 18 to 19, it says this, that all of creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That word there out of that Romans passage is the word apokaridokia, and it means eager, anticipa- eager expectation, edge of your seat anticipation. Means that you're making space and you're on tiptoe for something to unfold. That is what we are talking about when we're talking about living in a place of expectancy. All of creation has this tingling sense that something extravagant of God goodness is going to happen. That's what's happening in this verse that we're reading. And here's the amazing thing this eager expectation, we not only, Paul is not only saying you get to join in this eager expectation, but here's the astonishing thing. He is saying you are part of the fulfillment of this expectation. When you live in a place of expectancy, you are not only in eager expectation for what's going to unfold, but you are part of the fulfillment of what's going to unfold. But it's, it's, a, it's a stance and a position. It's about having a spirit of expectancy. And that's what's taking place here. Creation is, in a sense, awaiting for those who believe that, live like that, to arrive and fully become who God has called them to become so that they can be a source of joy for all humanity. You see, the world is not, creation's not waiting for the rapture. Uh, we're waiting for the rapture. We want to get out of the world so bad. Let us get out. The world is saying, no, we are in eager expectation for the sons of God to come and to show up, to be who they call to be. We are expecting that. We are on the edge of our seats. Live in the fulfillment of who you're called to be. You see, when we live in expectancy, it's hard to be disappointed. When you live in expectation, you set up for disappointment. And so it contrasts with Matthew. In Matthew 20, we're going to see the other meaning of this word. And Jesus is telling a parable. He says there's a farm and there are, workers in the, there are no workers, so he has to go out and get them. And at the beginning of the day, he goes out and he gets a group. He says, I'm going to pay you a good wage. I'm going to give you a denarius. The guys are, yes, we are keen. We're going to come. Uh, we, were, we had expectancy for a job. This sounds great. And they go and they work. But he needs more. So throughout the day, four more times, he goes and gets more workers. The last group only had to work one hour. But at the end of the day, he 
says, you know, I'm going to pay you what I said. I'm going to pay you your denarius. And now there were those who had got there and had worked the full day. And suddenly the expectancy for what was good and a denarius has shifted to expectation because those that came later got one denarius. How much more am I going to get? Oh, this is going to work out well for me. Something started to be built up in their heart as they were set up for disappointment because when Jesus said, you too get a denarius, suddenly it wasn't good enough. They wanted to pack up. They wanted to throw their toys out the cart. They wanted to to, uh, disregard him even where he had stayed unshiftingly and unmovingly, unswervingly good towards them. But their expectations had set them up. And that word, verse 10, The laborers who had been working, Matthew 20, verse 10, the laborers who had been working all day then expected to receive more. They expected to receive more, and that word expected there is the word nomos. It's very different to apocaridokia. And this word nomos means this, we can put it on the screen, it means to assume, to feel entitled, entitled and to feel owed. It's to assume, to feel entitled, and to feel owed. If you, if you see that plant growing in your heart, that weed, just uproot that thing. Make sure you set your heart in expectancy. Ro- Romans describes a spirit of expectancy. Epicaridokia is this. We don't know when. We don't know how. We just know that God is up to something good. And when it bursts forth, no matter what pain we've had to endure to get there, it is going to be worth it. Don't know how, don't know when, but we know God is up to something good. And yes, there's pain, but we're going to endure it because it's going to be worth it. That is the, the spirit of expectancy, spirit of expectancy. But in contrast, Matthew describes the attitude of expectation, this word nomus. It's what these workers had in mind. It's, it's distinct, and it's narrow, and it's a, this is the way it ought to be. And if it's anything less or even anything more, it's not what I thought it ought to be, and so I want nothing to do with it. I'm pulling away. That's what expectation does when it finds disappointment in and of itself. See, the posture of, uh, of um, expectation is this. It's folded arms, it's narrowed eyes, it's a knitted brow, it's a closed expression. You're not going to impress me. Uh, the, the posture of expectancy is this. It's open arms, eyes wide open. It's having ears that are alert. It's a face that's attentive and responsive because it's looking to see and engage with the goodness of what God's doing. How's your posture this morning? How's your stance? You see, this is what happens when we're in a place of expectation rather than expectancy. Let me describe it. I I don't know who said this quote, but um, I found it on a blog and I, I could have actually looked at the blog's author. I apologize. If you want to, I've got the blog. I can bring it back. But this is what it says. This is what expectation does. And we've got it. We can put it on the screen. We begin to see our loving Father as the one who withholds or denies our happiness. When we've got expectations that we set that aren't met, we begin to see our loving Father as the one who withholds or denies our happiness instead of who He truly is, instead of the one who is working all things for our good according to His purpose and plan. That's what happens when we've got expectation. And John the Baptist, he began with expectancy. He was in this place where even in his mother's womb, when he came near to Jesus, there was a sense of eager expectation, edge of the womb anticipation, if you want to call it that, where he jumped within her tummy. There was that sense of expectancy, apocaridokia. But then when he starts his ministry, it happens again. He leaps when he sees Jesus coming in the distance. He didn't know, he didn't have any expectation of him arriving, but he sees him coming. And this expectancy leaps in his heart 
heart. And he says, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Look, behold, there he is. And then he goes to baptize Jesus. And John suddenly hits a moment where, hang on, this baptism is not like my expectations because I'm not worthy to tie your shoes, so I shouldn't baptize you. But Jesus speaks into it and says, no, it's to fulfill all righteousness. And there's expectancy in his heart again and shows that it can shift. And God shows up and the Spirit descends and the Father speaks and the Son walks out with the anointing upon him of the Spirit's presence that abides. And something happens in the midst of that moment. But John lived in expectancy. And you see, he wasn't disappointed in that place. But somewhere, somehow, John's expectancy shriveled to expectation and apocaridokia became Noma. Somewhere that took place. And we see the same pattern happens in the Gospels, where you see that people approach Jesus, and they come in not with apocaridokia, eager expectancy, but they come with their nomus expectations, and Jesus fails to meet their expectations, and they turn away disappointed. I want to say this to you. He is faithful to fulfill all his promises, but he has never said he'd be faithful to fulfill your presumptions. He is faithful to perform his promises. He's never said, I'm going to faithfully fulfill your presumptions. He kindly moves even in our desires and the longing of our heart, and he surprises us with his goodness. But he'll only be held to account to his personality, his character, his nature, his promises, and his personhood. He won't be held to any other account because we cannot manipulate, intimidate, or control him. And so John finds himself in this place. And Luke 7 says this. He, John's speaking about these things that are happening. Uh, it tells us these things, things that are happening. Jesus is healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons and um, cleansing the leper. And John said, you know, are you the one we should expect? And Jesus said, there's an expectancy that's outworking. All of these things promised are happening. But your expectations that you have had, which you have prescribed or imagined for me to be or to do, that's not happening. So let me tell you something, John, if you, as you ask if I am the one. Let me tell you something. Verse 23. And so Jesus says, and so tell him, tell John, go back, tell John this. In his place of prison, let him, let him come into a place of freedom. Blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. Blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. So he's saying, tell John this. Blessed are those who don't get so locked up in their own expectations that when I fail to meet their presumptive thinking, that they quit and go looking somewhere else for a savior. Blessed are those who don't allow that to happen. And he starts to expound the difference of expectancy and expectation. Verse 24, when you went out, now he's turning it around to them, when you went out to see John, what did you go to see? What were you expecting when you went to see John? A reed swayed by the wind, someone who was influenced by public opinion and all the talk, the chatter, the social media going around, bending to whatever was blowing. No, that's not what you expected. Did you go to see a man dressed in fine clothes who could be boastful and proud and kind of force you and bend you to his will and his purposes? No, that's not what you went to see. You went to see a prophet. You went into the hot desert to see a spokesperson for the living God who no matter how bad it was would declare the wonder of what could be. You went out to see a man who was a prophet and that's what you got much more of and also much less. You see, some expectancy was over-fulfilled and some expectation wasn't delivered upon. That's what happens there. Because here's the thing. It turns out that not everyone actually wants to hear the Father speak. But everyone wants to hear the Father say what they want Him to say. Not everyone wants to hear the Father speak. 
but all of us want, him, want to hear him say what we want him to say. Verse 31, Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? Never happy. Their expectations never met, never fulfilled, never satisfied. You play them a ditty, they won't dance. They think it's frivolous, irreverent. You play them a dirge, they won't cry because now you're too gloomy and pessimistic. You show them a holy man living life to the hilt, living fully, and they call him a pagan. You show them a holy man living close to the bone, they call him a demon. Narrow and exact expectations that are always being disappointed. So, so let me ask us today, what sort of people are you? What sort of person are you? What is the posture of your heart? What is the spirit of your heart? Is it expectancy or are you in a place of expectation? Maybe you started with expectancy. Is it still there, revving at full tilt? Or is it kind of been falling back a bit and you shifting and slipping into expectation? Where are you currently? Where are we currently? Where's your household and your family and your children and your marriage and your finances and your sphere of influence? In 1916, we're in the midst of COVID currently, but in 1916, there was another pandemic that swept around America and Europe and it killed five million people in one year. And the scientific name of it was encephalitis lethargica, listlessness of the brain. And the symptoms seemed non-lethal. You know what they were? Sleepiness. The victim would just fall asleep, deep sleep. Actually, such a deep sleep, they couldn't wake up on their own. Someone would have to shake them awake and maybe do a bit of slapping and pouring cold water, and they would wake up for a little bit. But they would come out, and there was a trait. When they came out, there would be um, an utter, unalterable apathy. They would be totally apathetic. And here's the amazing thing. They cared about nothing. They didn't want to get up. They didn't want to do anything. All they wanted to do was go back to bed. There was no pain. There was no memory loss. There was no loss of bodily function. The organs weren't stopping or something like that. But waking, they were listless and they just wanted to sleep. Scientists had no clue how to fix it. And the majority of them passed away within a few months. This is what was sweeping around. Fortunately, uh, we are trusting and we are seeing and um, believing that COVID won't be affecting us so much as it has been through, um, we're trusting in healing, we're thankful for doctors, we thank you for, for immunity and immune systems that are blessed and whole, and so we pray that and declare that. But here's the thing, today we don't have to worry about sleeping sickness at least, but what we do have to worry about is the spiritual equivalent. It's where spiritually we become comatose, where we are unable to be woken up, where we are apathetic, where we'd rather just sleep, where we are listless, when there's no reason for it, but we just cannot engage and be active and to be of any effect. And here's, we know how it happens. So here's the, the good news. We know how to look out for this. It's when people live and they've got an attitude, not a spirit of expectancy, but they have an attitude of expectation. Then they start to find that those expectations aren't met and what they were, had an expectation for doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and so they stop actually uh, believing for anything to happen and they just 
disengaged. They become cynical and apathetic, and that's the cause of spiritual sleeping sickness. But here's the good news, is that we've got a remedy, and it's called expectancy. And that's why John the Baptist so provocatively is declaring to people, you need to, you need to get baptized. You need to come to repentance. You need to know that there is a Savior and a Messiah coming. And he's evoking expectancy in the people's hearts. That's why he's coming with the strength of this message, because even in the broken, hurting world, he knew that we could have an expectation to an eager anticipation for the goodness of God. And so let me say, what nurtures this expectancy? Because we're saying that this is the remedy for a spiritual sleeping sickness. What remedy is it? Here's the remedy. It's closeness to Jesus. Closeness to Jesus is that which cultivates expectancy in our hearts. You see, Jesus, with his disciples, he never gave exact descriptions of where they were going and doing. He said this, he said, follow me, trust me, believe in me. In this world, we will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He said, there is good in your future, and no matter what you are going through, you need to be sure of this, that the good, that the hardship you're going through will outwork, and you'll see my goodness in its totality and its fullness. He's saying, follow me. Walk closely with me. I, I love, I, I read about a Sunday school teacher teaching seven-year-olds, and my son's six, and he's in seedlings with um, Renee, and she does an amazing job. They, they're busy learning all their letters and doing everything as they get ready for school. But this was a, a, a Sunday school teacher, and she had seven-year-olds, and they could write, and she thought she'd do something of an exercise. She gave them a piece of paper and a pen, and she, she had been speaking to them for a while about Jesus, and she got to the point where she said this, if you're ready to trust Jesus, I just simply want you to write on this piece of paper, I accept Jesus. And so she got them to do it, and this one little boy, he started to write it out, but he got the wording wrong, and instead of writing out, I accept Jesus, he wrote this, I expect Jesus. I expect Jesus. I want to ask you, are you living in that place where you expect Jesus? Do you expect him in every moment you're living in, every challenge and every difficulty? Do you expect him in that which is good, not only to show his goodness, but that you can glorify him and give him thanks for his goodness. Are you living in that place of expectancy and where there's still hardship, there's eager anticipation, there's that renewed hope, there's that um, spark in your soul, there's that determinedness that you are gonna see his goodness even though it's hard because he is faithful to his promises. I expect Jesus. You see, there's a difference between expecting Jesus and expecting things from Jesus. The one is transactional, the other is relational. I expect Jesus. When we're in that place, with the spirit of expectancy, living in a house of expectancy, that's when we all feel fully alive, that we fully belong, fully awake, fully engaged. Life won't be disappointing, it'll be thrilling. Oswald Chambers says this, I'm gonna finish. Can we put this quote up on the screen? Keep your life so consistently in touch with God that His surprising power can break through at any point. Live in a constant state of expectancy and leave room for God to come in as He decides. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank You that even as we speak about the best place to live, that Father, we can just take a moment, just, just take, take stock of our lives and just where we are in our relationship and our journey with you. Lord, we wanna be those that we expect you. 
we are living in this place of expectancy that we will just know your presence with us every step of the way, your thrilling presence at every moment. And Lord, where we might have slipped into expectations, where we might have a list of requirements and demands and criteria, where we might have slipped into disappointment, and because of that, we are angry, and maybe we're in apathy, maybe we've grown bitter, maybe we're just suspicious of everyone around because our needs haven't been met and what we thought needed to happen hasn't happened. Lord, I just thank you that you come and that you start to cultivate, just through your closeness and your nearness, that you start to cultivate expectancy once again. I thank you that we get to live in and live out of that place, that place of just trusting that your surprising power can break through at any moment, where we choose to say we are here anticipating that which you're wanting to do, not standing at a distance saying do that and then you can come into my life. We're saying no, we're here wholehearted. We're throwing open the doors and throwing ourselves fully into all that you have, the thrill of walking in relationship with you. And we pray that we'll see the powerful outworking as we live in that place, that we'll see miraculous things take place that can only be your working for your glory and your name. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we say amen. Amen.